Welcome to Conversations, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church, Auburn, where we sit down weekly with our pastor, Eric Zellner, and seek to apply God's Word to our daily lives. We hope that this podcast will profit you as you join us. Hello and welcome back to the Christ Presbyterian Church podcast. I'm joined this morning by Pastor Eric Zellner. Eric, how are you? Hey, William. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. We are coming back to another episode of Conversations. This is episode five, so our fifth episode, and the title of today's episode is Who's in Charge Here? So if you remember last week, we recorded a podcast on church membership. And so we've established that it is biblical and practical and helpful for us to have and submit to church membership. But when we think about church membership, the only the fact that there is church membership implies that there must be church governance. Uh, if, if there's a physical body of people in the church, there must be some sort of governance. So um, I guess just to start with, how, how can we think through that idea that, that there is, in fact, church government, church governance? Yeah, um, yeah. That, actually, I think that's where the, the whole story starts. When, uh, when Peter preaches at Pentecost, and we talked about this last time, Peter preaches at Pentecost, there's suddenly 3,000 people, and then you get the sense that they're adding to those numbers. And almost immediately, the question is, uh, who's in charge? How does this functionally work? Now, everybody recognized in the early church... Um, from the time of Christ's resurrection, that these 12 men, the, the first apostles, and then, of course, Paul, who's, who's added later, uh, those men are appointed by God to be his emissaries, his, those who testify about his resurrection and, and put in place uh, the, the authority and the structures of the church. And so uh, church governance is one of those things that people go, well, I don't even really know that my church has a system of governance. And, uh, and if you don't know it, uh, it's just simply because you don't know. But every church has to be governed in some way. And so uh, that's how, how we got there is that the church suddenly had 3,000 members and they, uh, the Lord had shown the apostles how to put structures in place to help those saints be cared for. Right. So if, if we can say for a fact that there is church governance... Um, whether you want to admit it or not, there is there is church governance. I guess the best thing that we could do is try to figure out how does our Lord Jesus Christ desire His church to be governed, and see if we can identify what that is, and then live under that. Yeah. So, sure. can we start to talk about maybe possible biblical models of church governance, or, or how people have historically interpreted um, what the Bible says about? church governance. Yeah, I would I would jump probably first to answer the the first uh, a portion of that question, which is what what forms of church governance exist because right. churches have clearly uh, governed themselves in some way. And so uh, I'm convinced that from the time of the apostles there was there was a system that was just simply what we would call uh, a system of elders, a presbyterian what I, what ends up being a presbyterian form of church governance. Um, Titus chapter 1, the apostle Paul says to Titus, I've instructed you 
to appoint elders in every place where the church is established. So as the gospel's going forth into the frontiers of the, of the known world uh, and it's, it's penetrating into dark places, uh, there is a sense in which having elders in place is essential and necessary. Um, what happened in the early church, and I'm not a church historian, but what happened in the early church was that there was a transition from recognizing the authority of the apostles and the local elders to what does that next generation do once the apostles have gone to be with the Lord, uh, once they've passed away. And, and uh, I'm convinced that really early church history shows a continuous pattern of eldership, of, of a Presbyterian form of church government that, that goes for quite a while. But then uh, there starts to be, as more churches are established in particular areas, there starts to be a hierarchical form of church government, which is like one bishop is over this particular area or a group of churches in these areas. And because the ancient world wasn't... Um, didn't pop up churches as quickly as we do in the in the Western world. Uh, it would be one man who oversaw multiple house churches, and and they were they were a collection. So that so the Roman Catholic Church develops a uh, what's called a hierarchical form of church government, and that is that this bishop oversees this area, and this um, this other higher level person, and in some cases a cardinal, and then ultimately the Pope uh, oversees various hierarchical forms. What that means is that, that it's really a top-down form of governance. At the highest level, there is a pope, and that pope puts in place people to oversee or govern the, the areas, and then the smaller areas, and then the local churches. Uh, so that, that concept of hierarchical form of church government is one that is present in the Roman Catholic Church and it's present in the Episcopal Church. Uh, right. Those are those are churches, and even really a Methodist church has bishops and and other forms of structures in a hierarchical system. And, and the idea behind the Episcopal um, form of church governance that you were just talking about is that actually comes. They would argue that comes from the the biblical word um, or the Greek word in the Bible. Uh, Episcopos, um, which, which would mean an overseer, someone who would um, oversee. Uh, it, it actually, I think the word might actually come from the Roman army. Uh, it, it was a, a person who would oversee a hundred, a centurion would oversee a hundred troops, and they would call him an, uh, you know, an episcopos, someone who would scope out or oversee other men. And I guess that's the idea of where. Yeah, that that's where the, so, so biblically, that's where we get the concept of an overseer is right. is, is from that word, um, and the concept of an elder is a different is a presbyteros. Uh, so, so those those two words end up being uh, used, and I'm convinced they're used interchangeably early on in the church. Uh, there is, and I think it's the differentiation would simply be uh, whether we're talking about the function, meaning what does this person do. Or his character, um, and that is the the elder is a spiritually mature person. An overseer is one who has this the oversight and care of God's flock. That's a function. So that's yeah. But I and I certainly recognize that if I if I'm not Presbyterian, I can probably make the second best case in church governance for the concept of a hierarchical system right. because I can find words like um, 
as you, you pronounce it differently than I pronounce it because we don't know how it's pronounced. You're pronouncing but, it right. I'm not I'm pronouncing no, it wrong. No, no, no. I pronounce it Episcopos. But, um, so anyway, the, uh, the point is simply this, that you got Presbyterian, you got hierarchical. And the one that's become extraordinarily common in the Western world is congregational form of church government. For which there's no Greek word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I, in fact, this is the one that's, I think, the most difficult to make a biblical case for. And yet it's the one that's pervasive in the United States of America. Um, and so it means uh, congregational church is one that's governed only by the local congregation. So it doesn't have any connectivity to other churches, at least not in ways that are binding. Uh, and then also the members become the primary decision makers. And so um, those churches are primarily uh, Baptist. They're Assemblies of God. Um, they're, they're independent churches, and, and we've got one of those on every street corner at this point. Uh, but you've got in those places a connectivity only to the local members and nothing outside of that. And uh, I think that's probably the, the one that's most difficult to make a biblical case for. So when we talk about congregational, uh, in, in a strict sense, the congregational form of church government means that, that every member, um, whether we're talking about the seven-year-old who walked down the aisle last week and was baptized, or we're talking about the 85-year-old, every member gets a, a right to vote on every matter. Mm-hmm. But ultimately what we recognize is there's no functional way to do that. Hey, we need a new copier. So we need to call a congregational meeting to right. vote on whether we get a new copier. Uh, and then and then we have to discuss whether or not we're going to buy a $400 copier or a, or a $1,000 copier. Uh, and so you start getting a sense that it's really impossible, mm-hmm. not just biblically, but it's really impossible in a structural sense for there to be a true congregational form of church government where members are the, are the decision makers of all things. So most churches uh, put in place some form of decision makers. They might put in place deacons that function in an elder-like capacity. They might put in place elders that function simply connected to that local church. But the, but the Bible speaks pretty clearly about a connectivity between churches. That's actually the reason I'm Presbyterian, because right. I recognize there's extraordinary value in, in having oversight and connection, not just that this local church at Christ Pres can govern itself, but that what happens if I go astray? What happens if someone in the in the an elder of the church goes astray and begins to teach people things that are heretical? And there there begins to be um, a, a lack of biblical uh, instruction inside that church. Is there a system whereby that can be corrected? Uh, I think that's one of the strongest arguments for church government, especially in a Presbyterian form. I think it it hedges against lots and lots of dangers. Right. And, I mean, I guess diverging slightly to, um, I guess we'll go ahead and say, you know, we we are convinced of Presbyterian church governance. And um, if we wanted to focus on that for the remainder of our time, thinking about some biblical arguments for the interconnectedness of churches, um, what are some passages that we could, or just some biblical thoughts that we could think about to, to point us in, in that direction? Would, would Acts chapter 15 be one of those? Or Sure, yeah. 
Absolutely. When you start talking about uh, any time you see the early church coming together to to discuss a specific matter, right? Um, then you recognize that that though there are people in the early church that are that are on the hinterlands planting churches, there's a need to come back to the local body and to have a gathering of those who are helping to determine. Do we do we do Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to become Christians? What about food that's been offered to idols? How do we handle those things in these frontier places? Uh, and and so you recognize that the early church has a connectivity that that exists, and I think that's a a strong indicator that we should be connected. Um, because what you know what what would have happened in the early church if you consider this that the gospel goes to a place where they say. Uh, it's outside. Let's say it's outside Jerusalem or Judea. Goes to a place where there's a, a strong contingent of Gentiles, not circumcised, and a strong contingent of Jews. Because of course, as you know, the Jews were spread all over uh, large portions of the ancient world. And and so, what happens when Christ is is preached? Uh, it is very difficult without the authority of the connection of that early church for the apostles to make a declaration that's binding. But you see a place like Acts 15, and it is binding. How are we treating um, matters of circumcision and other things like that? So, yeah. And we see, you know, the some of our brothers and sisters, or, or some of our brothers and sisters who are convinced of the Episcopal form of church governance would say, you know, this would have been Peter who made this call, or one person who would have made this call. But we actually see Peter, James, John, Paul, you know, we see the apostles and elders coming together and almost having a discourse and rebuttals and arguments and coming together to to figure out what do we do with our Gentile brothers who have come into the faith and yeah. um, how do we treat them and yeah and it and if you remember the, the so the context is the Jerusalem Council uh, and when people uh, study Jerusalem, they recognize that James, who's the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, is the pastor of that church uh, by the time that we get to that point. But it's the testimony of Paul and Barnabas that are out on the frontiers that's brought back to them, which actually testifies to this. So there's a, there's a conversation which takes place in this connected church council. And even the Roman Catholic Church recognizes that the very first church council is the church council at Jerusalem, mm-hmm. uh, and that's you know that's a part of the connectivity of the church. And it's a there's a mutual sharing between James, Peter, Barnabas, Paul. These these guys are coming together and talking on these on these particular issues. Mm-hmm. So if we if we acknowledge that, then maybe the the best thing we can do now is kind of zoom in to look at. How do we, if if the church government, if the if Jesus Christ has entrusted His church to faithful men called elders, mm-hmm. how do we go about um, one qualifying those elders? Does the Bible have a qualification for them, and then putting them in place? And and how does that work out? Yeah. So the qualifications, uh, the scriptures are actually pretty abundant on this, which is helpful. First Timothy three. Uh, verses 1 through 7, Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, give what I would call biblical qualifications for elders. And, and it's really, um, you have to recognize that the, much of this is about the character of the, of the person, uh, the character of the man in this context. And so we, 1 Timothy 2 tells us that we should be electing, it's 2.12, we elect men to this position. Uh, 
uh, and then we elect those men who have this biblical character. And then there's then of course among elders there are there are those whose primary responsibility is to oversee uh, the responsibilities of worship and spiritual growth. Uh, the evangelistic witness of the church, even church discipline. And then you have some who seem to be set apart in the scriptures um, for preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 tells us that um, those who labor in the preaching of the word are worthy of double honor. And, what he, and he just basically connects that with not muzzling the ox. These are, these are men who are paid to uh, preach and teach, their primary function. And so... Um, we call that in our denomination teaching elders. That's what I am. That's what any pastor in the PCA is. Uh, they're teaching elders. And then ruling elders are those who are um, chosen by the congregation from among that group of believers to, to step up and unite with the teaching elders in the care and oversight of the church. Uh, I do want to say, William, it would, be, it would be negligent to not say this first. Jesus Christ is the king and the head of his church. And so when we're talking about church governance, what we're really talking about is how are we going to take care of Jesus's people, right? His bride. Yeah, yeah, right. And so the church governance is not a wooden or stiff or kind of uh, cumbersome discussion. It's actually guided by a most beautiful reason. Hmm. And that is, this is the bride of Christ. These are the people of God. These are the very sheep that Jesus shed his blood for. Mm-hmm. How will we seek to take care of those sheep while they're on earth uh, preparing to meet the Lord in heaven? Um, so that, that's, a, that's the heart of what's behind this. So I think you can see biblically church officers are elected by the congregation of God's people. I think you see that in Acts chapter 1. Verses 12 through 26, there's a, there's a clear sense in which uh, we've got to replace Judas. How do we replace Judas? There is uh, an electing process that takes place to get them to Matthias to take the place of Judas. Acts chapter 6 is where we get the uh, biblical definition, I mean, biblical concept of the office of deacons. Uh, 6 verses 1 through 7. And in that context, these, these people are brought out from among the congregation, and it was, it was obvious to them. So churches benefit from putting in place nomination systems that help, help the, uh, the leadership get the sense of who's, who are the people who are really obvious to serve, and the, the congregation generally knows that. Um, I also recognize, too, as another biblical principle, that, that a church is never overseen by one elder. Uh, and, and you see that um, Paul speaks not just in plural ways in his charge to Titus, but um, you can go to Philippians 1, verse 1, and, and you recognize that that letter is written to the elders at the church at Philippi. This is plural. Um, and that keeps it from being uh, Eric is the king and the head of this mm-hmm. church. Eric's the guy in charge. That's uh, tremendously dangerous. But we, it, it keeps us from leaving. We don't want to leave the fact that Jesus is the king and head of the church. And this is a shared group of men who are working together for the good of the care of God's people. And the, and the third thing I always tell people with regards to church membership, and, and you have to say this in the United States of America, uh, because you and I are familiar with how our, 
how our government functions, right? Mm -hmm. So we elect representatives to go to Washington, and we expect them to act as representatives to us. And, and there's tons of systems in place to make sure that they can be voted out if they have not accurately represented us. Well, in the church, elders are not representatives. Right. They're really they're leaders who are called upon to rule and govern and care for the church that belongs to Christ. So I say that because it's really helpful for people to recognize um, if you don't like the, the, uh, the carpet at the front door— um, you don't really need to go up to an elder and let them know, hey, I've got a thought on this, and, and since you're representing me at this higher church council, therefore would you say something about the carpet at the front door? Uh, there's uh, 10 million other ways to handle uh, if you don't like the carpet at the front door. But what we want to recognize is that the elder's primary job is not to be elders. That would, I mean, excuse me, not to be representatives, because that would make them uh, pliable to being swayed by the majority. And what you want them to be is faithful to the Scriptures, pliable uh, only by the Holy Spirit's guidance and the Scriptures' help, right? Able to lead God's people instead of able to be manipulated or maneuvered by God's people. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I love how the focus you put is the elder's task is caring for the soul, shepherding, not, mm-hmm. you know, making miscellaneous decisions on other things, although they may have to make decisions. It's, so one um, argument to this that I've heard commonly uh, has been pragmatically or practically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this Presbyterian, this interconnected, uh, elder-led church moves at a snail's pace. Mm-hmm. And if we break down into congregational or house church or, or some other model things get done at a much at a much faster pace, right? Sure. That's why they some some people call the Presbyterians maybe the frozen chosen, <laughs> uh, referring to evangelism. Sure. Um, so why is it important that regardless of what practical ways of, of doing things we may see that we stick to the one set out in the scriptures? And I think I just answered the question in the question, but Yeah. How did you answer it? You can you should speak to that actually. I, well, I mean I would just say um, Jesus Christ has set forth his desire for how his church is to be governed. So we're not to sacrifice what God's Word has set forth for our own whims and fancies or what we see. Sure. One, we would be basically telling God, um, you messed up. How it ought to be done. Sure, sure. How arrogant is that? Right. And I think to to piggyback on that... um, it's not like any of the man-made systems are, are super efficient, right? Right. <laughs> so we've got this biblical concept that I think is, is profoundly laid down in Scripture. This is the way the church is governed. Um, and, and we might read into it and wish that our agenda was driven more quickly to accomplish our goals and our purposes. But because we believe that, that God has governed His church by elders— as the, as the average member of the church, you are actually freed to simply pray for those men um, and, and entrust the care and the guidance of the church to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, consequently, you, you look at the world and you go, huh, what other good systems has the world come up with? Um, and you look at the bureaucracy of government, or you look at uh, you put you put a hundred people in a room and ask them to make a decision on a copier. You're going to have 100 different opinions. 
and you're going to have factions and fighting and arguments. Um, this takes this takes that all away. Actually, uh, you've got men who've been appointed uh, or elected in the congregation, mm-hmm. and you can simply trust them to make decisions on hard things. Right. In a lot of ways, that's freeing for God's people, and it should be. That's what it's designed to be, right? Because the heart of it is not uh, trying to get Washington to get things done. Right. It's caring for the sheep of God and then making right. decisions to help accomplish that. Right. Well, that's beautiful. Well, I uh, is that all that we have for today? Yeah, I think, that's, I think that covers it. Of course, if I was talking about the PCA, I'd also mention, of course, that above the, the local session of the church, you're connected to a presbytery, which is an area. And then above that, you're connected to the General Assembly, which is the whole denomination in the in the. Uh, the broader group. And so that's actually what I mean when I say connected, right? This church at Christ Pres is connected to this church down the road uh, because we're in the same presbytery. But likewise, these two churches are connected to 15 others in this presbytery. And we are connected to 15 others in another area under the oversight of the General Assembly. All that helps to to provide security, oversight, care uh, for God's people. Anyway, yeah, that's it. That was a big one. (laughs) It is. That's Um, important. Thank you, William. All right. Well, we hope that as we've talked now about membership, now about church governance, that, um, you know, you'll not only think, take membership seriously, join a local church and take your vow seriously to that church, but you'll also um, be in a church that has biblical church governance and you will submit to that and submit to Christ uh, in the process. So we hope that you've been measurably helped by today's podcast and, and that you will go and be a blessing to others. Yeah, thank you so much, William. Have a great day, everybody. All right, bye. Bye.